Hello, everyone, and thank you so very much. We are live. And I will be bringing Robin on in a few minutes. So if you can just hang in there for a few minutes and let me get Robin on the line, I will get her on and we will be live. So thank you so very much. While we're waiting for Robin, I'm going to play a little music just to get us started. And we will, as I said, be live. I hope that everyone can hear me. Uh, please uh, say something if you can hear me. The number you have dialed has not been recognized. Please try again. Can everyone hear me? Please say if you can hear me. I'm dialing Robin right now. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad. Now I'm just waiting to see. Okay, Robin, are you online? I'm just waiting to hear from Robin. Hello, Robin. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Robin. Now <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what's going on here. So okay. let me give some music so people can hear a little music and then okay. see what's going on. I think okay. we still have... It looks like a lot of people are saying... <laughs> Okay, it's asking me, do I hear? Uh, I hear voices. Oh, you hear voices. Oh, wonderful, yeah. loud and clear, yeah. great. Okay, we are live, Robin. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Let me tell you, because I was not going to be able to type all of that. <laughs> all right. Oh, Yay. they're saying yes, they hear us great. loud and clear. Okay, do you great. all also Good hear news. music? That's all you have to do is just tell us yes, and we're ready to go. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, oh, Robin, yes, yes. I am so happy to have you on tonight. And thank you so much. You've been talking to the people in the chat room. Now I have people saying, no, 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 no music. What, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for okay. having me on again as a guest. I appreciate it. Okay. Yes, well, thank you. And, Robin, we have people saying welcome. Uh, they are telling us that they are experiencing technical issues, so I hope 
that you all can hear us. Just somebody in the chat room, please write and let me know uh, if you can hear me. I'm not getting a response. Okay, <laughs> let me send a note. Can you hear me? Okay, let's see what goes. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, okay. yes, we're ready. <laughs> okay, everyone, I, let me just uh, tell you all about Robin. Uh, Robin has been researching her family and, and others for over 17 years. She's an engineer by day, and Robin makes good use of those research and problem-solving skills in the field of genealogy. She specializes in Maryland research, African-American, and slave research and court records. Robin has a strong interest in promoting the documentation of families and communities and emphasizing the use of proper genealogical standards in our research, such as using original records and source citations. Now, Robin's blog of which she is going to tell us more about, Reclaiming Ken, was featured twice on this show, uh, Do You Have an Artificial Brick Wall? And we had rave reviews when she uh, came on. Uh, the, lis the listeners really enjoyed hearing her. Robin has taught an advanced African-American genealogy class part-time, and I participated in that class. She's an excellent <laughs> teacher, and, and she's the author. And you're going to hear more about the best of Reclaiming Ken. So, Robin, help everybody just give a warm welcome to Robin <laughs> Smith, Hello, Robin. Come on board. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Bernice, for having me on again as a guest. I really enjoyed myself last year when we were on the show. We had a good time, and so I'm happy to be back again. And well, I think I'm what I do is have you. Okay. Go ahead on. I was. I'm going to go back, and I'm. I, I thought that I would start off uh, um, with a little bit about what drives me uh, in genealogy. Um, you know, uh, m most of us listen to all these and watch all these pop popular TV shows that are on now that feature genealogy. Um, I watch them, too. I think they're wonderful. And they necessarily use celebrities, right? Uh, right. And they research people who trace back to these extraordinary events. But one of the things I found for myself that I think is important is that it's really not the famous people, but the everyday regular people who really intrigued me. You know, the people mm -hmm. in our families who worked as farmers and laborers and just simple domestics, people who took care of their families and exercised their faith, those are the people who really impressed me in, ge in genealogy, ordinary, everyday people. And these are the people who are often left out of the history books, right? You don't see movies about about them, and those are the people that, most of us come from. So I really celebrate that, and it, that's one of the things that really drives me in this. And um, I think there's so many stories to tell, especially in African-American history, that haven't been told. Or if they've been told, they, be, they need to be told from a different perspective. So a lot of these stories include hope and pain. We've all found these success and triumph, failure and suffering. But we've got to tell these stories. I feel really strongly about that. 
the small community in Tennessee where my grandparents were born is virtually gone. I mean, it really lives on only in the memories of, of descendants of people who were from that community. And, of course, most of us don't live there. And these stories are so much more than just names and dates. I mean, I think sometimes when we're talking to people who are not genealogists, that's what they think of, you know, and they kind of give you that look, like, why is that fascinating to you? But it's so much more than just names and dates of people's births and marriages and deaths. I really think their lives tell us something about ourselves. And so, you know, it really isn't about the past. It's about the past in one way, but... I mean, our country is still arguing about the meaning of citizenship, right? We can turn on the TV today yeah. and see arguments about that, about rights and about the balance of power between the federal and state governments. We're still fighting battles about labor and wealth and the role of religion. And it just fascinates me that all of these things that our ancestors are experiencing, many of us are continuing to to discuss and, and fight about today. And one of my f- favorite quotes is from William Faulkner when he says, the past is never dead, it's not even past. <laughs> I love mm-hmm. that quote. <laughs> it so, is a wonderful quote. Yes, I love that. Um, so I want to start my presentation by something I, I started to talk about in the chat room, which is what's going to happen to all of those records, all of those files and folders, all that information on your computer when you when you become one of the ancestors. <laughs> well, those of us who invest years in this endeavor, we've got to really think about this. And one possible future, sadly, is that all that research can be lost, tossed away when our own estates are, are settled. Um, a lot of us are the only ones in our family passionate about doing this. Um, but if we don't put forth some effort to share these findings with others in a way that allows that history to live on, uh, we really do risk losing it. And I'm, I already gave a shout-out uh, to writing out our research like Bernice has done with, with her book, Our Ancestors, Our Stories, which is a wonderful, wonderful read that she's written with, with others from South Carolina. Um, so some of us have done that, uh, but not nearly enough of us. And so um, I mentioned a few of the reasons that um, we don't we don't start writing when we perhaps should. A lot of us think we have no we have no idea where to start. A lot of us are insecure about our writing ability, and a lot of us feel like we don't have enough. You know, we feel like I don't have enough to write it up, and. Um, you know, a friend of mine, she would always say to me, you know, better to write some now than, than write nothing never. <laughs> so okay. I think that's a good that's a good concept to keep in your mind. But I offer two suggestions. And the first is to contribute an article to a local genealogy journal, okay? Almost all counties and most regions have genealogical journals that accept articles written about people from that area. So if you're not quite ready to jump into writing a full book, I think writing an article for a genealogy journal is an excellent way to sort of get your feet wet. Um, you can write about one person. You can write about a family or even an entire community. And the best thing about local journals is they usually happily accept almost anything people contribute because it's all voluntary. I don't think I've ever had a journal uh, reject an article. They're more than happy to take the stories that we need to tell. Um, so that's one option to get started. Another is to start a genealogy blog, as I have done with Reclaiming Ken. And that, that, 
that's really why I started that. It was sort of this need to sort of document um, uh, the research that I was doing, and I thought that I'd have at least this online journal. And um, you can track your own progress. You can easily share the information that you have with family and friends. And you can also get help from others when you have a brick wall. You know, you write about it in your journal, in your blog. You're going to have others who read that and give you suggestions on how how to break through. So wonderful reasons to start a blog. Um, I'll tell you this, it's very easy to set set one up. WordPress and Blogger are the two main platforms. And there are YouTube videos that can walk you through set, setting them up. And uh, so I really do encourage everyone to think about that as an easier, firsthand way of writing up your research, okay? So either contributing an article to a local journal or starting to write a blog. So six years ago, I decided to develop and author this blog. And as I mentioned, uh, initially it started just as a way to document my own research. But over time, uh, the voice of the teacher in me became louder, and the blog really turned into more of a teaching blog and a way for me to help others learn genealogical skills and to highlight various ways to use records. So after a suggestion from a good friend, Aaron Dorsey, I guess I've got to say your name because I know you're listening, <laughs> I decided a few years ago to turn some of that content into a published book. So the resultant book is is about is a little over 200 pages, and it's divided into five chapters, loosely arranged by subject matter. A lot of the posts probably could have gone in various chapters, but the five chapters are uh, records and resources. Uh, chapter number two is evidence analysis. Chapter three is slave research. Four is research tips. And five is Robin's family history. And so what I thought I'd do is walk through the five chapters of the book and just highlight a couple of the example posts from each of the chapters. Wonderful. Does that sound okay? Okay. Yes, it does. Okay. So the first chapter is records and resources. And in one post, I suggest using a resource called Historic Trust Inventories. So these are the records of properties that have earned historic status in the state. So in the example, I'm using Maryland's. Uh, database, which is called the Maryland Inventory of Historic Properties. So these are files on families, churches, businesses, and entire communities. Uh, you can search by county or address, and each entry uh, will retrieve the actual application that was submitted to the state. And the files can provide a boatload of genealogical information. The files vary. Some have little information in just a few pages, while I've seen others that have over 100 pages of information. That information usually includes an architectural assessment of the significance of the home or area and also a history of the ownership of the home. I have found deeds, probate records, maps, oral history interviews, and extensive photographs, uh, and even some Bible records. Other states have similar databases. I've found some for Virginia, Alabama, South Carolina, Louisiana, Georgia, and more. Although for every state, every state doesn't have all the files online, but many of them do. Um, there are also the voluminous uh, files ma managed by the National Park Service 
in their National Register of Historic Places. Um, of particular interest to those researching enslaved people are the many files on homes that were owned by slave owners. So I encourage you to seek out these records in your research. Uh, I've gone back to this database over and over again in every year. Another record that I suggest in this chapter is the application for a marriage license. So we're always collecting marriage records and marriage licenses, but the application for a marriage license, where they exist, should be reviewed as well. Because in many cases, it's going to include additional information that's not written on the license itself. If you're lucky, that application may include parents' names, and include, including that sneaky maiden name of the mother that we're always searching for. I've particularly seen this in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. So the application for a marriage license. And the last record I'll discuss from this chapter are the voter registration records, mostly for the years 1867 and 1868. So this was after the disastrous attempt by President Johnson to, to let the southern states, what I call, reconstruct themselves. <laughs> and Congress uh, took over the process and started to pass Reconstruction Acts. One of those acts divided the South into five military districts so that each southern state had to draft a new state constitution and they had to allow universal male suffrage, and they also had to ratify the 14th Amendment, okay? Some of these records still survive. For those researching European ancestors, some of these include naturalization information. And for those of us researching former slaves, this can help you place your ancestor in 1867, three years before that ever-so-critical 1870 census. So Alabama and Florida are online free. That's right. These records are online free for those two states. I know that North Carolina and Arkansas have publications. Texas and Georgia are online at Ancestry. And I know that Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Virginia have their records at their respective state archives. The records for Texas and Florida are especially rich. So voter registration records, if you haven't checked them, please go, go do so. The second chapter of the book is going to discuss discusses evidence analysis. So those of you who've taken my class know that I really believe we should be spending more time learning how to analyze the records that we do have instead of staying um, in collection mode. So collection mode is, is the thrilling part for us. Um, but we've got to learn how to make sense of what you found, right? That's really going to be the key to future success. So in a post in this chapter called Deconflicting the Same Name, I discuss the need to ensure that as you're searching through records that you're matching identities and not just names, right? It's very, very easy to see someone with the same name as your ancestor living in the same place and just assume that it's, that it's your ancestor. But identity is much more than just a name. It is who are your spouses, who are your children, where do you live? your occupation, what church did you attend, uh, literacy, birthplace, age, and so on. And you just won't believe how many people have the same name as your ancestor, live in the same area. One of my ancestors is named Reason Prather. Now, when I first thought, you know, started researching, I thought, oh, he's going to be easy to find. Well, believe it or not, there were five African-American men named Reason Prather living in the same area. So all of them were related. 
But I had to carefully sort these men out using all the information I had gathered and make sure that I was attaching the right marriages to the right men and the right death records to the right men. So three tips I I give for doing this. Use city directories and land records to add occupations and to figure out where each man lived. Watch out for teenagers and children living and working in other homes outside of their family. You see this a lot in 1880 and 1900. People are working in uh, as servants and laborers, and they're not living in their family unit. So you, you can easily lose those children. And beware of people switching between using their first name, a nickname, and a middle name on different records. That's tripped me up on a number of occasions. In the same chapter, I discuss the importance of collateral research, and that is thoroughly researching all of the siblings in each generation. The tendency, of course, is to focus on your direct ancestors, your grandparents, your great-grandparents. But you've got to remember that children remember different things about their parents. And many of them will have moved to a different state. So the information provided on a record in a different state may be different. And if that sounds like too much work, one of my friend's ancestors had 21 children. (laughs) And he diligently gathered death certificates and records for all 21 of those children. (laughs) So it doesn't mean you're going to find records on everyone, but certainly an attempt should be made. And in the post, I show a chart of my great-grandmother Beatrice Prather's seven siblings. Out of the seven siblings, four, four named her correct parents. Others named women connected to the family, but they did not provide the correct mother. The third example from the chapter is the advice to always check the original record. I think that's really hard to remember when we're spoiled by so, you know, so much being available online, but Whenever you find information in a database that's not, that doesn't allow you to view the actual image, you need to mail off, send off, and get a copy of the actual record. You cannot make an accurate assessment of any source without viewing it in its original form. So as we all know, those of us who have been using Ancestry for a couple of years, transcribers make lots of mistakes. And sometimes they don't record all the information that's available on the source. And, of course, the handwriting uh, goes from very clear to to atrocious. So in this post I show an example of the of an image of my fourth great grandfather's marriage record. His name was Baltimore Merriman. Isn't that a great name, Baltimore? The ancestry transcriber noted that he married Martha Barb, B A R B, in eighteen sixty eight. But when I clicked on the image, which is a very poor quality image, You can't see the wife's name at all. When I got a chance to look at that original record, I went to the courthouse in Tennessee, pulled the book off the shelf. The wife's name was clearly Martha Bailey. So striving to look at original sources is a core genealogical standard, and we've got to always um, uh, keep that in mind as we're, we're using the Internet as the tool that it is. The third chapter is slave research, and I'll say that my interest and my experience in the research of slavery is a key focus of Reclaiming Kin. Slave research is one of the most difficult kinds of genealogical research for obvious reasons, but contrary to popular belief, there are hundreds of thousands of original records that discuss slaves. 
I really do find special joy in uncovering the lives of slaves because so much of their life story has been filtered through the words of their owners. And so, so many of their voices were silenced. But the exciting part is we can find their names and we can tell some of their story. There's new research by historians, particularly in the modern civil rights movement, has overturned a lot of the old assumptions. So it's really exciting uh, to see some of the new discoveries and new things, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> being uncovered. One of my favorite posts is called What You Didn't Know About Slavery. And it's meant to call attention to the fact that what most of us know about slavery, especially gathered from popular culture, is woefully incomplete. I'm not afraid to admit when I started, my image of slavery and what I knew about the institution was pretty much from watching the miniseries Roots. That's pretty much what I knew. <laughs> so since then, I've I've really immersed myself in slavery studies. Uh, Ira Berlin, many of you will know who he is, a slavery historian out of the University of Maryland, says that when we think about slavery, we we tend to think we get this image of cotton, the Deep South, Christianity, and large plantations. But he reminds us that all of those things came very late on the scene. The last few decades of an institution that's been around for almost 200 years and didn't look anything like any of that. So one of the points we need to understand is that slavery was vastly different depending on time and place. A slave's life in 1775 in Maryland would look almost nothing like a slave's life in Georgia in 1850, and so we've got to understand that. Most slaves had surnames, even though it was not typically recorded by slave owner custom. Another critical point we need to understand is that most of us are not paying enough attention to the domestic slave trade. The African slave trade that most of us are familiar with brought about 400,000 slaves to the northern mainland. And when that traffic was outlawed by Congress in 1808, the domestic slave trade started. And that trade moved almost 1 million slaves from the older colonies in the northeast, right, especially Maryland and Virginia, to the newly conquered lands in the south and in the west. And most slaves by that point were second and third generation African Americans now. And that system really ripped families apart. So many of your ancestors who ended up in South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi probably originated in Maryland or Virginia. You can look at the 1870 census and see those birthplaces. So another post in this chapter, I use slave runaway ads to take a look at the mind of the slave owner. I've always had kind of a fascination with slave ads. They really do reveal a lot. And now, you know, over the years, you're having more and more projects and databases and websites that are um, extracting slave ads from newspapers, from historic newspapers. So um, although certainly they're all not online, they're certainly a little bit online. You can, you can search them a little bit easier um, as opposed to 10, 15 years ago. So in this post, I show several examples from Maryland. And one ad reads, Negro Roderick, age 30, has a wife in Upper Marlboro, the property of Sarah Duval, and a free brother, Robert Duquesne, living in the adjoining county near the village of Queen Anne, where he is probably lurking. <laughs> the word always makes me laugh, the way they say lurking. So we can see that the owners, number one, knew a lot of information about their slaves. Another example shows, reads, a Negro man, Jerry, who calls himself Jerry Jackson, 
is likely taking the route by Baltimore to Pennsylvania. And several ads mentioned that escapees probably had forged passes or some free Negro papers. So you can see the surnames mentioned in many of these ads, and you can see their suspicion of free blacks, right, who were who were um, suspected as uh, enticing slaves to run away. But one thing I love about the ads is they really do explode two of the myths that slave owners use to justify uh, slavery. Um, to justify the separation of slave families, they often said that slaves did not form the same emotional attachments. Can you believe that? Slaves did not form the same emotional attachments as white people did. So if that was true, why are so many of them running away to get back to family members? They're running away to their spouses and their children and their parents. Another myth is the slave owner's insistence that slaves were happiest in their natural state of slavery. So again, if that's true, why are so many running away over and over and over again with a very low chance of success? So that's interesting. The last example from this chapter is called Slaves and Community Papers. And by that term I mean the documents of the prominent people from the community, such as large slave owners, merchants, sheriffs, and doctors, so archives, universities, and genealogical societies have in their collection many of these documents, and they shed light on the enslaved community. So one example I show in this post is the account book of a man named Dr. Gustavus Warfield in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, from 1816 to 1830. And in that book, of course, he's recording visits with his parent, patients, and those patients include free blacks and slaves. He's delivering babies. He, and he's performing vaccinations, among other things. And he included many valuable tidbits in those notes, such as, he wrote, Joe Anderson, freed by Charles Hammond in 1823 and 1824. Those are the years that he, that he visited him. And he wrote, James Fawcett, freedman, living at Lisbon, 1821-1822. I also found similar information about slave families when I was down at the Library of Virginia. I found the account book of a sheriff in Amelia County. So be on the lookout for those uh, kinds of people in your community and whether or not they have surviving records. So chapter well, Robin, four of the book. Yes. Robin, we're going to take a quick break so that you can just – Relax a little bit. We're going to take a yes. one-minute break and then come back, and we will hear the last two chapters. And Wonderful. while you are sharing, there's the chatters are also in the chat room, and they will also have an opportunity to call in and ask you questions Wonderful. and also uh, make comments. So we're just okay. going to take this quick break. And for some reason, the music is not playing, so I'm going to try another one. Hey, we have these things, so.
Well, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Now, you have been listening to Robin Smith share the best of Reclaiming Ken, and she has walked us through the first three chapters of the best of reclaiming kin and now she will continue so robin you're on thank you so much bernice and so i ended off uh with chapter three and i'm going to uh provide three of the posts from chapter four of the book which is research tips uh, one of the research tips from this chapter is to use charts whenever possible in your research. So I'm a visual person, so um, it came very natural for me early on to try to uh, track my research in some sort of chart. Uh, in the post, I show several examples of charts that I've created. And some of the things that reproduce, re- reproduce really well in charts are tax records, probate records. You can track someone through the census. Deed records, you can track all of the land that your family owned, who they bought it from when it was sold. Slave ownership is an, is another example of something that I track uh, using charts. So um, one of the other benefits is that um, it's easy to see what information you don't have and where you have gaps in your research. So it's, it's very much, I use this um, in conjunction with timelines. When I do that, I'm able to see, oh, okay. I'm missing a gap of about 15 years, and it shows me where I need to focus my efforts. Another post in this chapter is ideas for writing your family history. So I started off talking about writing, and but we know we've got to have more than just names and dates to make it to make it interesting. I found in my experience that um, family members who were only a little interested were a lot more interested once I wrote it up in a story that was digestible and could tell them, paint them a picture of what I've been doing all these years. And so um, some of the ideas that I give for what to add to that history is uh, you could talk about not just the history of the city or town, but you could talk about the geography of the land. You could talk about what crops were grown. You could talk about what what areas people migrated from. You could mention any famous Americans or famous events related to that area. You can talk about the prominent citizens, the big churches, the big businesses, what happened during wartime. You could talk about major illnesses or epidemics, um, such as the yellow fever epidemic that hit Jacksonville in 1873. For enslaved people, and I teach this in my classes, you can use the slave narratives and you can use slave inventories to describe what their lives were like. So these are just a few of the ideas that you can use in order to put the meat on the bones of your research and turn those uh, 
dry names and dates into a story. The last example from this chapter is on formulating research questions. So all of your research should begin with a list of specific questions. And the reason you do that is going to allow you to research in an organized, methodical way and allow you to find the most relevant sources, right? So I know we all like to fish, because on the Internet particularly, because I do it too. Um, but you'll be quickly overwhelmed if there's not a process that you're following. Um, and that can cause people to just stop researching altogether. Uh, in this post, as an example, I show the death certificate of my widowed great-grandmother, second great-grandmother, Molly Waters, who was born in 1859 and buried at Mannequin Cemetery. So after I collected oral history and reviewed the census and some other sources, I came up with a list of very specific questions about Molly and her family, such as, does Mannequin Cemetery have existing headstones or burial records? Does a death certificate exist for her husband, Samuel Waters? Was Molly recorded as a freed black in the freedom certificates of the county? In the post, I think I have about 15 questions. But again, each of those questions, I can I can go to the Maryland State Archives, I can have a set of records that I can look for and answer that question. And so you want to be conscious of that as you're researching, um, that you always want to, want to have your research framed by specific questions. The last chapter... Um, includes posts that are more directly related to more of my own research, and it's called Robin's Family Research. The first example is my post called Criminals in the Family, <laughs> about my nefarious <laughs> third my nefarious third great-grandfather, Joseph Harbour. And those of you who've seen my court records lecture have seen a lot about him. And the takeaway from this post is to never neglect the value of county criminal records. <laughs> I had very little information about him other than uh, the 1880 census and a few land records. That is, until I looked at the circuit court records and found out that he was regularly committing crimes, both large and small, throughout the the entire 1880s and 1890s. <laughs> so that's one of my, you know, we don't like to admit it, but hey, you know, we, we've got the good, bad, and the ugly in our ancestors. Uh, in this chapter, I also highlight the records of the Southern Claims Commission in my post about my ancestor, Margaret Barnes. So these records, for those of you not familiar, contain the claims of loyal Southerners uh, about their material losses during the Civil War. Most of the original files are, are online now at fold3.com. The commission received about 20,000 applications. Uh, there are indexes to these records on ancestry. And while I was reviewing a record about a man named Benjamin Freeman, I discovered that my ancestry, Margaret, testified on his behalf. And in the process, she verified bits of her own history for me. Um, these records have thousands of claims by former slaves. And many of the former slaves served as witnesses, right? So this, these are records when the, when the Union Army is coming through the South and, of course, is stopping at various farms and taking things. They're taking food. They're taking horses and mules. and They're taking whatever they need. Okay, so this is an attempt by by the government to at least reimburse uh, loyal Southerners for some of those losses. 
the stories here are very similar to those found in Civil War pension files. And I've spent hours just getting lost reading these records because they're so fascinating. And just as a short example, this is um, a file by a, a claim by his name was Primus Everett, and he was in Halifax County, Virginia. And this is just a few sentences of what he says. He says, during the war, I was a slave of William Everett, but I lived with Mr. Alex Thompson, to whom my wife belonged, about seven miles east of the courthouse. For more than six months in the last year of the war, I went off to North Carolina for fear of being put on the breastworks. Now, he's talking about the Confederate Army and and their pattern of they were impressing slaves, right? So he says, I went of my own accord. I said nothing about it to my master, but I was always a union man. My simple reason is I wanted to be free all the time, and I believed the Yankees would set us free, and they did. I was hired to Mr. Thompson. He allowed me to keep all I could make over a certain fixed sum, and I bought that horse with the proceeds of my own labor, and I raised the bacon. So I love stories like that. So if you haven't taken a look at these these records, they are just fascinating. The last example from that chapter is my post called Martha Simpson Right Under My Nose. And this is my second great-grandmother, Martha Simpson, who married Levi Prather, a former slave in Montgomery County, and had 12 children. However, rather a surprise to me, Martha turned out to have been born a free black woman. She had never been enslaved, and her roots lie in the neighboring county of Howard County. Well, I happen to live in Howard County, so I was particularly excited about this discovery, and this post is really meant to remind us all to to remember to search surrounding counties and to not assume that all African-American ancestors were enslaved at the time of the end of slavery. So the book closes with several appendices um, and recommended books and suggestions for beginners. And let me just say in closing that I really do believe genealogy is not just a hobby. I really believe it's a calling because most people who start down this path really never finish. Um, but I really believe future generations are becoming more and more detached from any knowledge of their family's deep past. So I think this is, a, is, is an important work that we're doing. And the Reclaiming Ken blog and the book is really just my offering on how to help re- rediscover your family's past, tell their stories, and pass on to future generations the memory of their ancestors. And the story of your family will be the best reality television you've ever known. <laughs> I hope the book inspires you to uncover those mysteries, and I hope that you will consider writing up your own family history, if not in book form, then by article or by beginning the blog. So thanks, everyone, and I'll be glad to take any questions. Well, this is just so inspiring, and you are right. We need to tell our stories, put it in some forms so that you will have, you will leave a legacy so that others can read about your family. Because if you don't, then it's gone. I mean, why bury your family's history Mm -hmm. rather than tell Mm -hmm. your family's history? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's one of the things that, you know, we have a comment coming out, several comments, so unravel Mm -hmm. your past says, preach. (laughs) 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 Angela says it's it's a great book and and a great blog. 
And so, and someone else says that they have your book and they follow your blog. So, Robin, you have inspired so many people. And by putting the best of reclaiming kin in a book format, it does give individuals one place to sit down and just read your blogs and really bask in your wisdom. Uh, yes, because you yes, do share you. share your wisdom with everyone. Well, yes. I have a question for you, and okay. it's it's more into the the mechanics of turning your blog into a book. What okay. advice uh, would you give to others interested in turning their <laughs> blogs into a book? Oh my goodness! Well, uh, it took me <laughs> almost two years, and I learned the hard way. Uh, I I learned a lot of lessons the hard way. One is that Microsoft Word, which is what I used, um, is not very forgiving when you're trying to publish a book. probably would have been better to start off with publishing software, software that actually um, is designed to handle columns and pictures and things like that. So there were a lot of things I had to learn uh, how to do. The index, which one of my friends um, just sort of, she had been telling me forever that I, I must have an index. And that index probably took me five or six months because I didn't realize that an index is not automatically made. I just thought in 2015 you press a button and somehow (laughs) the index would be magically made. Well, that wasn't true. So, um, you know, there were a lot of uh, issues. I do think, I will say this, um, one one of the things I would suggest, if possible, is to probably hire a graphic design. There are small businesses that do graphic design for something of this nature because I I, I worked hard on, I didn't want it to look homemade. <laughs> you know, I was self-publishing it, but I didn't want it to look, I wanted it to look nice. I wanted the cover to look nice. And those things are hard if you're not a, a, a graphic artist. Um, so that was one of the uphill challenges uh, the graphics and those sorts of things. I mean, choosing the post wasn't hard, um, dividing them up into chapters. I sort of had that worked out in my head, but actually um, getting it formatted and getting a cover made that, again, looks like something you want to read, um, those were kind of uphill battles. So yes. that would be well, yes. that would definitely yes. be mine. Right. Well, did you also have an editor? So I I had I had friends who edited for me at at various stages. Um, I think that going into my next book, um, I probably would hire a a firm that, and I've actually found some firms after I've done the book. I've actually found some companies that do graphic design, that do editing, that do those sorts of things that really took me a long time to figure out how to do. So, um, I mean, Lulu is, I use Lulu.com for those of you um, who are curious. Um, I use them mainly because I used them before. I've published a couple of other books before. Um, And uh, they are not the only uh, uh, company that does it. Obviously, there's CreateSpace, there's iUniverse, Ex Libris. So there's tons of self-publishing websites out there. Um, they offer a lot of a lot of tools, a lot of videos. 
So they offer a lot of ways to get started, but I do think that having um, a company to help with um, editing and the graphics would be the best uh, advice that I would give and probably advice that I would follow the next time around. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it it is a challenge for yes. anyone that's considering writing a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those uh, individuals who are in the chat room that have participated in the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute, they mm-hmm. actually went through a writing and publication track. Oh, and so wonderful. they heard about, you know, yes. what self-publishing meant, what it meant yes. to have a copy editor, what it meant to have an editor. Yes. And yes. and we spoke of that and how mm-hmm. it how important it is for you to get the right people to help you mm-hmm. put your book together. Absolutely. And so um Angela's posting the names of several uh self-publishing companies that individuals can uh search mm-hmm. out. However, uh writing is a challenge especially mm-hmm. if you're trying to do it without having your dream team pulled together to help you. <laughs> <laughs> Who and did you, you use said, when it, you did it, your it book? You you. The right image. The right with image. Anita okay. Henderson, okay. yes. Okay. Yes, and yeah. so uh, this company provided us with the entire dream team that we needed mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. our book published, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pleased with how it it turned out, but but the lessons learned, I'll, I'll just use those lessons moving forward. Um, and and those those um those companies don't come cheap. Let's just say that those you know the most of them, um, you know you, you may have to invest uh, a, a little bit more than you're you're comfortable with in order to come out with a product that that looks really really nice. But I think it's I think it's worth it in the end. Yes, it it is worth it in the end, and mm-hmm. and there, therefore it's so important once again to tell that story, mm-hmm. put the story mm-hmm. in writing, and uh, Angela's asking to find the dream team. The dream team would consist of someone that can help you design your your cover, so okay. you need yeah. someone to help you with mm-hmm. that, someone mm-hmm. who can help you lay out your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone mm-hmm. that's going to be an editor, an editor that's not your best friend, but an editor right. that's going to read that book. <laughs> and, hey, look, they might and, not be your best friend after they've edited it, after they've right, told you that, what they really but, think. But that's why you're hiring an editor, <laughs> and you need a good publication house where you can get your book printed. <laughs> But that dream team would come in a package to help you do what you you need. Definitely. And I would add one more thing to that dream team: a marketing, mm-hmm. a marketing person, marketing the book. Uh, you know, I was so immersed in making the book. You know, I'm not ashamed to say I didn't think one thing about marketing it. And um, probably because it took it took so long, I was just so happy that I was done with it. But yes. marketing is a whole new area. You you can hire people, their articles, but it's a whole new animal uh, in and of itself, marketing uh, your book once you're done, identifying your core audience, um, plugging into the networks um, where you can connect with that audience, um, all of those things. So that, that took quite a while, and I kind of learned it on the fly. But uh, I would yeah. I would add that as a part of your dream team. 
Yes, definitely. Well, mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm going to open the lines. If anyone would like to call in and ask you a question, the the phone mm-hmm. line is open six four six two zero 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 four nine one. And if we don't have anyone calling in, then we will end the show for tonight. I just want to just thank everyone. Uh, there there is a question though, and mm-hmm. the question is: Have your family been supportive? of your research and your blog and your book? I think my family probably represents most families, which is they're, um, you know, they're mildly, they're mildly interested. I mean, once you, once you, once you've been doing it for 10, 15 years, obviously people who are not into it, um, you know, they kind of get tired of you talking about it all the time. (laughs) So, (laughs) Um, they are supportive, but I have what I call my genealogy buddies, you know, who are, those are the ones I call when I find a record, when I have a breakthrough. Those are the ones that are going to be excited that you found this marriage license that you've been looking for for 10 years. I mean, you know, I can, I can tell people in my family that, but only a genealogy buddy is really going to have that same level of excitement. And I know that all of you know what I'm talking about. So, yes, they've been excited. Oh, but, yes, absolutely. You know, that genie buddy is exactly what you need when your family, <laughs> when the eyes are rolling yeah. and it's like they're walking yeah. away and you're excited. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, you have, you, the, you know, you look at them and you're like, oh, here she, you know, their eyes kind of gloss over. Here she goes again. She's about to start yeah. talking about family history. Yeah. But, I mean, they're they're probably the average family. I mean, they're they're very proud of the book. They're very happy about mm-hmm. the book. They purchased the book. So, I mean, you know, what more can you ask? That's right. Well, we have mm-hmm. comments coming out of the chat. I love my genie buddies and amen. <laughs> yeah. and we know the drill. Indeed, we do. <laughs> so, so definitely we, we understand exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. So how can people uh, get a copy of The Best of Reclaiming Ken? They can purchase the book directly from the website, which is www.reclaimingken.com, through a PayPal account. Uh, Or I've also had several uh, people who don't use PayPal. You can uh, send me a check uh, by snail mail, and I'll gladly send you a copy. I'm going to be meeting on September 26th, lecturing about the book at the Central Maryland Augs chapter, uh, at one o'clock, and so I have plenty of books there. If you're able to come, I would love to have you here. Uh, and um, it's also available on Amazon and Lulu.com. Um, but I prefer people you can to come actually to ReclaimingKin.com and and, okay. uh, and get a copy there. Okay, everyone. So you can, if you're in Maryland, please uh, go to the. Central Maryland Augs meeting on September the 26th, and you'll be able to get your book and get it signed from Robin. Mm-hmm. Are you mm-hmm. making any other appearances later in the fall? So right now I'm probably going to be at the Augs. I'm planning to be at the Augs um, to have a booth at the Augs conference, which is in Richmond this year on the weekend of October uh, 16th and 17th. I'll be there that Saturday, so I'll, I'll have an exhibit there. Um, I'm right now in the middle of planning a few other lectures, but okay. that's that's one that I can tell you for sure. 
Right, right. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on tonight, and thank you for your patience and all of you in the chat room for just hanging in there until the technical issues were resolved with Blog Talk Radio. Uh, you know, this has just been wonderful, and I My just pleasure. want everyone to just please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your hosts, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Robin. Good night, Bernice. Thank you. Good night.